You'll be my witnesses of all that we've just been singing about. That's a tall order. Something that indeed gets our attention. Part of our the doctor's instructions to me were for two weeks. I was not to do any kind of exercise or any kind of physical activity that would raise my blood pressure. So you pray that my blood pressure won't rise this morning while I preach, although I think you'll be praying in vain. I don't know why he's so worried about blood pressure. He cut me on my nose, not somewhere else. I don't know. Lord God, your word is so beautiful. And when it's transported via flesh and blood and spirit, when the words of the scriptures have become living flesh that are shared with others who so need a witness, your power is immeasurable. Your love outpours and your strength unbelievable as your transforming mercies are received as truth by those who receive it. Help us, Lord, to be such a church that our witness might be bold and strong and gentle and timely. For we have come to you this morning in order that you might teach us. Bless us now as we hear your word and as you speak to each of us. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I have a dream. Now people who have been pastored by me through years can tell you I have several dreams and I do. One of them I always dreamed would just be a part of a church where every person in the congregation was a tither. I threatened some congregations that I was going to stay there until that was true. They outlasted me. Maybe I should say they outlasted the bishop. But I also have a dream where every person who comes to worship is a witness. A witness who is not only ready, but who is willing to give a witness for Jesus Christ and his kingdom that can be received and heard by the people who so need it. And that's what I want to share with you today, is how to give this kind of witness in the world in which we live. Now, I've been doing some hard reading this week. I've been reading a couple of books that I don't really like to, like to read, but they're helpful for me to read. And sometimes during this sermon today, you're probably not going to like some of the things I say, but trust me, if you'll receive it, perhaps it will be good for you. For instance, one of the books is titled, <laughs> it's hard to even say the words, unchurched, unchristian is another title. And I've been reading about surveys taken amongst often the 
youngest generations in our society, and also surveys taken from churches that are dwindling in size as groups of people are leaving established churches who are believers in Christ. And so today I want to begin to address how we can be witnesses for Christ in such a way that perhaps that trend can be reversed. Because I believe what I told the children is true. If we get to the point where our witness is catching, just like bad stuff spreads, good stuff spreads too. Just like one powerful witness can affect one person who can then affect another one, who can then affect others, that spread of the gospel is more powerful than all the evil in the world. So I'm going to read you some strange scriptures again that you just heard. It's only three verses. You can bear to hear it again because there's a phrase in here that I like. It's a little strange for the topic I'm addressing, but I believe it's pertinent. Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, which was in a mess, by the way. I know you've probably studied that letter and you know that. Paul was writing to that church whose context was a lot like our context today in the United States. And he writes in chapter 3, I could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to people of flesh as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. It's so important as a foundational principle for doing evangelism. Now, I know that's not exactly what he's talking about here. He is getting ready, however, to give a witness to this congregation about the things that are going wrong in that congregation. So he is getting ready to give a witness. But in this statement, he has already done something that I think is crucial for every person to make a habit of doing. Because this kind of response to the people in our world who are looking for a witness can only be received in our world if the witness is shaped in the right way. If we shape it poorly or we shape it in the wrong clothing, it will be so much more difficult for them to hear. The object of a witness is not to lift ourselves up, nor is it to make us feel better about what we're saying, but rather it is to give a witness of helpfulness to a person in some kind of crisis in their life. Sometimes they know it, sometimes they don't know it. And that's what makes it so hard. That's why I don't particularly like reading the books I've been reading. Because they tell me about everything that people are saying is wrong with church. Everything that's wrong with being a Christian. Well, since I've been one of those since I was this tall, I take that personally. And I want to argue. Now my wife will tell you I want to argue about anything. And she's mostly true. I do like to argue. Especially if you're wrong and you usually are. <laughs> Unless you agree with me, of course. And so when people start telling me how bad the church is... I want to give a witness. In the name of Jesus, I want to pop some of them. Yeah, I know it's a bad thing to say and admit, but I, this is just the truth. Because they're so wrong, I'm thinking, you know, if I just slap you, maybe I'll get your attention and you'll really understand. And then I think, they're a lot younger, a lot stronger. Maybe I shouldn't slap them. But how can I be helpful to them? And, and sometimes the way I need to be helpful goes against my grain, against my natural personality. Now, some of you are just born sweet. You're, you're kind of sickening sweet, you know. 
You're always so mushy, and you say the right sweet, loving words. And people like me hear that sometimes, and we just kind of, our skin kind of draws up, and we get a, My wife's family was that way. They, they're always so lovey-dovey and tell each other they love each other all the time. You know, I just wear down, you know, listening to it. And I'm thinking, you know, y'all couldn't possibly love each other that much more than my family. We never need to say it. Well, they need to say it all the time. And as I, I think I may have already told you this, but if I hadn't, well, I'll tell you again anyway. You know, every time they leave, if they leave to go outside and take the trash out, they have to kiss everybody in the house, you know. <laughs> I don't understand it. I don't understand it. You know, that's just not my thing. But it's weird how if you're around that stuff all your life, it begins to change even the most determined. And I'm pretty determined. I'm a pretty determined person. But after 40 years... Today, I'm driving out of our neighborhood, headed to church, and guess who's waving at me coming down the street from the other side of the neighborhood is my daughter. We're about to hit the same main street. She to go to Frisco, me to come here. And she's waving, and I'm waving, and then as I'm leaving, stopping to make a stop, she's honking and going on by. And then when I'm getting to church here, not while I'm driving, I texted her and wished her a good day, and blew her a kiss on the little thingies, you know, you punch it in. <sighs> Anybody can be overcome with the silliest stuff if you're just around it enough. And so, what she do? Of course, she said the same thing back to me, blew a little kiss. It's important to her. And therefore, it's important to me. You're not spiritual people, but people of the flesh. You're infants in Christ. That was Paul's evaluation of the people in the church at Corinth because of the way they were acting and the way they were living. Now, this is the principle. You need to write this down in your mind. And in your heart, because if you write it down on paper, you won't have it when you need it most. The witness principle is we have to learn to understand and to evaluate the people that we want to share a witness with before we give the witness. Before we give the witness. So often we have such a word. Well, there are people I know that I'm just waiting for the tiniest crack so I can jump in with the word of truth they've been needing for 20 years. <laughs> you know, so if they give me the crack, or if they don't, I'm liable to imagine it and just jump in there with that witness that they so need. And many of the times, especially when I was younger and couldn't wait to jump in, they never hear it. They never hear it. Because you see, I had not fully evaluated them and understood their life from their perspective rather than from mine to the point where I was ready to say something that they could hear. Now, the best words in the world delivered at the wrong moment in the wrong way to the right person end up usually causing as much damage as they do good. Example. My memory goes back at least as far as the 70s or the 60s. I was in high school. I don't remember a whole lot before there, probably because I choose not to. But I remember the witness my daddy gave me whenever I came home one day after work, was hanging out at the home of the weekend. I was in college. My hair had gotten a little long on purpose. 
Not as long as was the fad of the day, down your shoulders and down your back and everywhere, because I was afraid for my life if I showed up at home like that. <laughs> but at least long enough that it was kind of halfway over my ears, which would have been call, called a modest, modest rebellion, a modest haircut in that day. Believe me, we knew how to grow hair. We lose that trait as we grow older, don't we? But anyway, I showed up at home, and my dad came out, and he saw me. He saw my hair nicely washed, not tangly and gnarly, not dirty, but nicely washed, but a little too long. And I said something about Mama said something about my, my hair. I'd been to the barber or something, and my daddy said it didn't look like he cut it to me. Well, I was 20, 19 or 20. I can't remember exactly, but I was a man. I was working full-time, going to school full-time. And my daddy didn't appreciate the fact that I, my hair was only that long to please him. Not to please me, but to please him. So when he said what he did for the first time in my 20 years, you know what I did? I turned around and looked at him and I said, with all the wisdom of being as old as I was, I cut it this way to suit you, so from now on, I'll cut it or grow it to suit myself. My daddy's about six foot one. <laughs> and though I outweigh him now, he's been gone a long time, I didn't outweigh him then. And he looked at me, and I just glared back. I'll have to admit it. And my mama looked at us. Her eyes were big. And I turned around and walked back in the room, got my stuff together said goodbye, and went back to my apartment. Not another word was ever said about that incident. Or about my hair. Ever again for my daddy. Why? Because my daddy understood too late that he had not chosen the right words to reach me that he had not understood the length of my hair from my viewpoint, but rather only from his. He had given a witness that was not going to bear anything. He knew I was beyond him making me do what he wanted. But it didn't think about that before he spoke. Sometimes, sometimes, when we're parents, we do that with our children, with our youth, with our neighbors, with our nieces and with our nephews, sometimes the word of judgment comes at the most crucial instant. And even though the words may be accurate, what it conveys has the opposite effect of what we want. How sad is it if we want to hand someone the most priceless gift in the world and we package it in such a way that they can't receive it. Is there anything sadder in this world than that? Paul had taken the trouble to learn, to understand, and evaluated these people. And he knew they were children in the faith. They were immature believers. They were barely believers. He could not speak to them as mature people because they couldn't bear to even hear it. So he was offering them the easy stuff, the milk. How often do we want to jump to the hardest things in life? In someone else's life when we want to share a witness with them. 
For instance, I know the perfect witness for the person who's overweight. What you do when the overweight person walks into your presence, you just look at them and say, you fat slob, you ought to lose weight in the name of Jesus. <laughs> now, usually those people that say that are slender, small, or tall and slender, and disgustingly thin. <laughs> They've never fought a struggle like that overweight person has with weight. So to them, it's just a matter of eating right, and you'll be thin. I've heard somebody say that. Can I get a witness, Sally? Many times, <laughs> not always understanding what large people go through, sometimes even eating about the same way that many other people do. But their body doesn't work the same. And being thin is not so it's a big deal to them. But it's a big deal to others. What an effective witness that has. Every time somebody tells me I need to lose weight, or every time my wife even looks at me the wrong way when I'm eating certain things, I tend to get seconds. <laughs> You'd think by 40 years she'd understand that. She's pretty close to it, although the other night, for the first time in a while, she slipped. It was late at night. I'd had a long day. I came back from the refrigerator with a little bitty bowl of ice cream. A few little peaches on top. She didn't say a word. She just looked up from what she was reading, followed me till I sat down and looked back at her book. <laughs> now, she said that didn't mean anything, but I know she's lying. <laughs> but do you think it stopped me from eating that ice cream? No, sirree. In fact, that ice cream is going to last a lot longer just because I know that I shouldn't be eating that much of it, or probably, maybe, yeah. Rarely. There's a wrong way to witness to somebody. And the first thing that's wrong is when you attack somebody who has a problem that they already know about, and you want to over, overly simplify the problem, or you want them to work on that problem when that's not even the main thing bothering them. So, understand somebody before you speak. Now, Begin with the question, who is this? In other words, how do I speak to this person? Is this person 15 or 12? Is this person 19 on their own? Or is this person 27 and been married and divorced and has a child living somewhere else? Is this person 72 or is this person 51? Is this person employed or unemployed? Has this person had a life of love and, and support in their life? Or has this person struggled all their life and been reared in a home where Christ was seldom heard from? Who is this person that I'm thinking about giving a witness to? Is this a child who's hard-headed and stubborn and willful? Or is this, is a, or is this a complacent, gentle child? How do you witness to different people and you begin simply by, first of all, understanding who it is you're talking to. Is this a believer in God? A believer in Christianity? Or a believer in some other kind of religion? Does this person who calls himself Christian really know Jesus? Do they know the Jesus of the Scriptures? Do they believe the Scriptures? Have they read the Scriptures? Has anybody explained the Scriptures to them? Have they ever been to church? Are they what's called unchurched because they once were in church and have left church because they were hurt in church or beaten up in church? By the way, that's next week's sermon. Or is it someone 
who's in church right now, but really just there physically, not there spiritually. Then ask yourself the question, what do you think? And in my notes, think is underlined. It's written with a highlighter. What do you think is the issue that needs a witness? Check your evaluation before your witness is delivered. Because you may have picked something you want to change in their life that is more about you than it is about them. Maybe they're thinking about doing what you did when you were 13. You're going, oh my God, we can't have that. I've got to kind of stop that right now. They're fixing to make the typical 13-year-old mistake. And you know why they're doing that? Because they're 13. Now, if they're about to make a mistake that's going to threaten their life, sure, you're going to come in with all guns blaring. But even if it's a very serious mistake, if your witness is not shaped, they're not going to hear you. I know some of you think, well, they're 13. They're not going to hear me anyway. That's possible, but I don't know. Some of these 13-year-olds I'm meeting around this place, I think they are listening. I think some of the 14-year-olds are listening. Now, they may not be making eye contact constantly. They might not be patting you on the shoulder and saying, thanks, friend, that's just what I needed to know. But that doesn't mean they didn't hear you. It may mean they're just taking what they've heard and processing it and beginning to do what all 13, 14-year-olds do, make their own decision about it. Yes, I'm talking about your children, parents. I know you think you can make them do what you want, and I know you're wrong. <laughs> I have two children. They're grown. I've seen your children a little bit. I've seen people just like you with children just the age of your children. And they always think one thing. And oftentimes, it's not exactly what's happening. I've heard parents say, my daughter will never do that. And I smile and say, just wait. <laughs> just wait. I had one of each. I had the obedient first child. We raised her perfectly, of course. I had the second child. <laughs> Not so much. <laughs> just as loving, just as special. Just different. She had to be treated differently if you were going to get through to her. But the main thing we wanted to do is let her always know that we loved her, even on the days when she was acting the fool. Because that was the best witness we could give our teens. Now, if you check your witness, you might be asking yourself the next question, a second important principle. Is this person receptive or do they appear to be ready to receive this witness? Let's just take the weight thing. It's so easy to talk about. It's, you know, it's a sin I'm not familiar with, but some of you probably are. I'm told we live in a very overweight world. You don't talk to a person about losing weight when they haven't eaten for three or four hours and they're sitting down in front of a banquet. It's not a good idea to talk to them about losing weight. You shouldn't eat those potatoes. You shouldn't eat all that meat. You shouldn't eat that dessert. I know the table looks pretty. Stay away from it. Now, that's not the time to talk about it. You shouldn't talk about it when they're frustrated or bothered and they always eat when they're frustrated or bothered and then they come in frustrated or bothered and you will say, well, just stay away from the refrigerator because you're frustrated. They never think about what you might be thinking. 
How else would you like for me to take out my frustration? I'll let you finish that thought. Are they receptive? Are they receptive? Now, this, here's the second thing. Are you ready to give that witness? This is the third thing. Evaluate. Be sure. Check your evaluation. Be sure it's true. Then make a judgment on whether or not this is the time and the place and if they have the attitude and the right spirit for you to talk to them. If not, then it's not the right time to give the witness. And the third thing is, are you ready to give the right witness? You say, what do you mean? Well, I'm ready. Really? Have you ever been witnessed to by someone who wasn't ready to give witness to you? You know, I've even preached a time or two when I shouldn't have preached. The very first sermon I ever preached in my home church, I should have been asking myself the question, were they receptive? Because they really were. They wanted to hear what the young guy on the back row was thinking about him becoming a preacher. But you see, I wasn't ready. Oh, I was ready to preach them a sermon, and they needed to hear it. Because I was full of wisdom at 25, and they needed to hear it. But I wasn't ready. You see, I went up there to preach to make a point. I didn't preach with understanding. I didn't preach with compassion. I didn't preach with gentleness. I didn't preach with a helping word. I preached with a directing word. And so I wasted the first message that God really gave me from top to bottom by the way I delivered it and by not being ready to deliver it. Sometimes we get so impatient and so worried that if we don't do it right now that this person may never hear that witness. And you've even heard that in sermons. Not from very many Methodist pulpits probably. And I'm just saying you have to make the choice. Now if the person is a casual user of alcohol... And this person is a college-age person. You need to just shape your witness and give it in the right way. If this person has been experimenting with drugs and is going to a party where there's going to be heavy use, then, yeah, you may need to give that witness then, even if they're not fully receptive. But you've got to be so gentle when you give that witness. You've got to be so compassionate for them to hear you. You've got to be so humble in front of them, even though they're the ones that's wrong and you're the ones that's trying to help them. If you're not in the right attitude, if you're not ready to give a witness they can hear, you will actually make things worse. I know you don't want to hear that. It's not said anywhere in Scripture, so you don't have to believe it. But if you just stop for a little while and think about the times you shared your witness, perhaps some of those times you really weren't ready and looking back you might be able to realize that. Perhaps they were not ready when you chose to deliver your bit of wisdom, but you delivered it anyway because you were ready. Now I'm going to ask the fourth question about the giving this kind of witness and then I'm going to be rushing to the end. Not because I want to see the kickoff of the Cowboys. After all, that's taped at home. But I don't want to keep you forever. Is there an existing relationship with the person you want to witness to? In this day and age in which we live, if you try and give a witness and there's no relationship there, 
unless it's a perfect stranger who is obviously seeking the advice of someone who calls himself Christian, then you probably are going to deposit that witness on unwilling ears. If you don't have any relationship there, if you have a relationship with someone that's filled with love and trust, you can say almost anything to them. Sally had earned the right many times over that when I walked back from the refrigerator with a bowl of ice cream to give me that look. She spent 40 years, 41 years before we got married and started. She'll never admit it, but that's okay. Don't tell her I said it. Yeah, she is here. She's right over there. I'll walk over here while I'm saying that. She has earned the right in this relationship, if I'm going nuts with eating, to say, you know, you're kind of not fitting your clothes as well as you were. I'd rather hear it that way than just quit eating. Get up and do something else. She could say, get up and go play more golf. That'd be a good idea. (laughs) Maybe not. But at least she's earned the right to the relationship of hanging around for 41 years to say what she wants to say. If this makes you uncomfortable, me talking about my wife and I's relationship, let me know. I won't do it again until probably next week or but it lets me know how many people are uncomfortable about it. Sometimes people say, Is your wonder your wife hasn't killed you already? And I said, Well, probably as a thought several times. And even our children, they're not as much fun because they've grown up and they're gone and you don't know them. But how do we know this person's need, even when we're in the relationship with them? Ask questions. Not condemning, accusing questions, open-ended questions. Ask questions in a way that gets them to talking about whatever it is that you think needs to be addressed in their life. And over several conversations, you might actually get to the really heart or the kernel of the issue you want to give a witness about. Here's the hardest part. After you ask the questions, this is all part of building the relationship, you have to do the hardest thing in the world for most of the world's population. And you know what that is, don't you? If you know what that is, raise your hand. I see a few, but not very many, and that's probably true. You know why? Because the next thing you have to do is you have to listen to what they say. Not listen to what you're expecting to hear. Not listening so you can jump in with with the answer to the problem before they ever get through telling you what the problem is from their perspective. But listen, and most of us are poor listeners. How do I know that? Well, I spent 35 years talking to individuals and couples about listening. Usually couples come in, you know what their troubles are? They're not having good conversations. Sometimes it's about money. Sometimes it's about their sexual relationship. Sometimes it's about how to raise their children. Sometimes it's about where they live or where they're going to church. I've had them in my office for all kinds of reasons. And the common denominator is... Usually, most couples are poor listeners to each other, especially if they're agitated at all. So if people are agitated enough to come see the pastor for counseling, they're agitated, I can promise you. And when they come and you start telling them, well, y'all are good listeners? Oh, yeah, I'm a good listener. I said, well, y'all talk about the thing that's giving y'all the problem. Just go ahead and have a conversation for about, for about 10 minutes. And then I stop it and I say, what did she just say? And he looks at me and goes... She said, she said she didn't like that, but I do. Now, I said, I didn't ask what you liked. I asked you what she said. 
well, she said this or that. And then I'll look at her and I'll say, is that what you said? And she'll look at him and she'll say, no, that's not what I said. And then I think they need a marriage counselor, not a pastor. Because they need to learn listening skills. And then I look at her and what did he say? Well, he said, da 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 And he meant, da 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 And I look at him and I say, is that what you meant when you said what you said? He said, no, it's not. You need a counselor. Because you're not listening. You're not listening. If you're not listening to the person that's hurting, I'm going to give you this first illustration. I'm going to hit on a tender subject as I do it before I close. It's about listening. Remember, 1 James 1, 19 says, Be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Now, I said I was going to avoid some subjects as long as possible in most congregations, and this was one I said I was going to avoid here. But I just feel led to say something about it right now. I've had a few opinions along the way about this book, about what it teaches and what it says. And I'd like to tell you that from the first day I started preaching, I was wise. And I knew the scriptures perfectly. I knew what God intended to have conveyed. And I need to convey it to other people. I can remember thinking as a young pastor in the Methodist church, from a pretty conservative church, that there wasn't enough room in churches for women to be preachers. That was a man's job. That's what I thought. <laughs> God found it ironic to call me into Methodist church where there's as many women coming into ministry as men. And then I found out as I went along the process that every person that becomes a pastor, an ordained pastor, has to be voted on by all the preachers. And since I'm a bulldog sort, that meant that I was going to have to vote against every woman that came forward to be ordained because she was a woman. I thought that might be a problem. I thought it might be a problem getting in to be a pastor. But I was so sure about what Paul wrote in a particular passage. I was so frightened by the idea of when I got to Asbury, I signed up for a course at night. It was called Women in Ministry. I thought, well, they'll, they'll, they'll give me what I need to straighten this mess out. They did. And I shut up. Now I want to talk about another something. I got a call one time in the middle of the night. Somebody asked me, can you meet with me? The person's voice was broken. He was obviously sobbing over the phone. I said, sure. When you want to meet? He said, right now if you can. I said, okay. Gave me an address to go and meet him. And before I arrived at that place, I was afraid I knew what the subject was going to be. And I walked in the house to where this father and husband was sitting in an empty house that was a rent house of his family that they owned. He looked like he was tortured. And he says, you're probably not going to want to talk to me after I tell you what I need to tell you. And for the first time in my ministry at that point, I heard a man tell me that he was gay. And it was tearing him apart. And he'd been denying it for a long time. And he says, I know you probably don't want to talk to me or have anything to do with me now. 
I knew he needed a witness. But you know what he didn't need was more condemnation. What he did not need was to hear somebody take his troubles and heap more guilt upon him. And my novelty at that point, I didn't know a whole lot about that subject. Oh, I knew a verse or two, of course. All us good Christians know a verse or two. But I looked at him and told him, I can assure you that I still love you, that I still care about you, and that your struggle is a real struggle that you're obviously going through. He was a wreck. He was at the point of suicide or leaving. He didn't know what. I said very little, but I listened a long time that night to a man pour out his heart and his soul in the size of a town where it was going to be an earthquake. You have to tailor your witness with compassion and with gentleness and with love. Even if the person standing in front of you says, I committed murder 27 years ago, and nobody knows it. Even if the person says to you, I've been sitting in church all my life, and it's never been real. You still have to love them. You still have to care about them. Even when they're defiant, and they're knocking what is the most important thing in your life, your understanding of church, they need to be loved. They need, you need to have compassion. It's not always easy because sometimes instead of being quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to anger, we're filled with righteous indignation at a sinner such as the one in front of us thinking that somehow their sin is worse than ours. In 1 Corinthians, the ninth chapter, the 22nd verse, Paul writes, I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. The preceding verses, he's laid out that he has become many things in his life for the benefit of the person to whom he was given a witness. And what that means is that sometimes we have to lay aside our outward actions that we consider part of our holiness in order to come near to somebody who's being broken apart for them to be able to hear us. I remember the first youth prayer I said at a church that had very few youth. My wife is going to frown that I'm saying this. Sally, could you just close your ears? Just that way you won't be bothered by this. But they were getting around and ready to have dinner. And, you know, youth are youth. You get it that youth don't like church much. I struggled with church all my young life. They just didn't do enough stuff. You know, it was boring. The preacher, I couldn't understand his words. Y'all don't have any trouble understanding my words, do you? You'll be blessed by that. I'm such a simple mind. I don't, I, I, all the words I learned in seminary, I've forgotten. So I just speak normal English. May not say much, but at least you'll understand what I say. 
And I said, yeah, I'll pray for the youth. Let's bow our heads. Thank God. Let's eat. Amen. The youth all laughed and thought the guy was crazy. Or there was a time in First Methodist Paris when I went to dinner, lunch for the first time with a new staff. I was sent to a church that was completely not me. It was a hoity-toity East Texas church. One woman who was on my staff in another town, when she heard I was going there, she died laughing. I said, what are you laughing about? She said, this is the funniest match in the world. I wish I could be there to watch this. I said, what are you talking about? She said, the little ladies there drink tea like this with their finger out, you know, to the cup. And I said, oh. So I went to the church the first time with my staff. I prayed in a foreign language, but not one recognized any people. And by the time I said, amen, let's eat, they all looked at me. And two or three were rolling out of their chairs. The rest of them were like, what crazy person has the bishops in here? I said, now we can all get past the formalities of getting acquainted and let's just realize we're all just plain people. Now let's eat. They never forgot that prayer, though they don't know a word I said. I didn't know a word I said because there was no language to it. You know, it was just gibberish. But we were in a Chinese restaurant. I don't know Chinese, so I thought, why not? <laughs> Be all things to all people so that by the grace of God, you will reach some. When I walk into the meeting place for men in a town of 2,000 where they all gather for early morning breakfast in their work clothes and their hats and their boots, I don't walk in and say, well, good morning, gentlemen. How are y'all? I don't do that. I don't walk into the youth when they're meeting and go, well, y'all look like a fine group this morning. How are you each and every one doing? <laughs> I don't do that. Youth don't act that way. Men act a certain way when there's only men. Now, you women are always curious about that and if you think I'm going to tell you about all the strange ways men act you're wrong read the books by the way a lot of the books are wrong too <laughs> because they make it sellable sweetable and most men with it around just most other men we're not all that sweet right thank you he's an Aggie he's sure not all that sweet <laughs> I know it's a tough subject and I know you don't like to lay aside who you are but as soon as you start looking at life through that poor person in front of you's viewpoint, as soon as you walk a few miles in their shoes, you may actually have the chance to be heard and to give a witness that completely changes a person's life. I've seen it. I've been a part of it. It works. It's not usual, but it works. Are you ready? Are you willing? If so, then my dream might be about to come true. We might become a church so on fire for others that we do what's best for them rather than what's best for us. What a frightening church thought. <laughs> Gracious God in heaven, you love us more than we deserve, more than we can ever repay, and yet you give us the opportunities if we're ready and willing to evaluate, to understand, to get to know, to build a relationship with, to listen so that we might be a part of your beautiful gospel of Jesus Christ.